Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that you are working with us, the way that you work with mankind throughout history, especially the way that you work with Israel. We thank you that you have been so patient and kind and merciful, despite the many shortcomings that Israel has had and that we have had. You are patient with us and you work with us. We thank you for that. We ask that you help us to learn from this book of Habakkuk. This evening, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk, Jesus Christ, the God of my salvation. Even in, in short books like this, only three chapters, I always find lots of things, that, interesting things that I didn't know before. The name Habakkuk is an unusual one. It's of uncertain origin. Possibly it signified ardent embrace, in other words, a really passionate embrace. From Habak, meaning embrace. Some have suggested that it was the name of a garden plant, which the Assyrians called Hambakuko, but which cannot as yet be identified. So I think that is less likely, but that's what some scholars think. Habakkuk the prophet wrote this short book. Little else is known about him. A reference to the Chaldean, that's the pre-Babylonian name, a reference to the Chaldean Empire in Habakkuk 1.6 indicates that Habakkuk probably wrote this book after the decline of the Assyrian Empire and prior to Nebuchadnezzar's raid on Jerusalem. So this puts the book's composition sometime between 612 and 605 B.C. So it, it happened after the fall of Assyria and before uh, Babylon had come to full power yet. The landmarks Habakkuk represented God to the southern kingdom of Judah. And of course, this is the only kingdom of Israel that's still in existence at this time because the northern kingdom had already gone into captivity. He wrote as the priest he was. We think that Habakkuk was probably a Levitical priest having a dialogue with God. So he's having a, a dialogue, a conversation with God throughout this book. Habakkuk's dialogue warned that the Babylonians are coming. A reminder to smug believers that God is active and aware of their arrogance and ready with an answer they won't like. So even those people who profess to be believers, God will deal with them, even if they're arrogant and smug. So the itinerary, the outline of the book. First, faith is tested in chapter 1. Habakkuk's faith is put to the test. And then in chapter 2, faith is taught. And finally, in chapter 3, faith is triumphant. His faith has overcome the obstacles that it faced. Habakkuk is one of the most important writings in all of Scripture. Why do I say that? So much so that one of its verses is cited multiple times in the New Testament as a central tenet of the gospel. The great doctrinal books of Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews all refer to, mention, or build on the famous verse, the just shall live by faith. So that's a very important verse out of scripture. It originates in this book, little book of Habakkuk. 
using it to point to the all-important truth that Jesus justifies his people by their faith in the finished work he did on the cross. The just shall live by faith. The history, Habakkuk lived during the reign of King Josiah, who reigned in the 600s BC, the 7th century BC. Several significant, significant cultural and religious events around this time. Josiah's religious reforms that took place in 622 BC, the fall of Nineveh in 612 BC, and Babylon's attack on Jerusalem in 605 BC. So as I said earlier, the book was probably written sometime between the 612 BC when Nineveh fell and the 605 BC when Babylon attacked Jerusalem. These are just a few events, significant events that took place at this time. Josiah's religious reforms were largely unsuccessful. In other words, they didn't stick. They weren't permanent changes. Much of the nation continued in idolatry and corruption, the two major sins that Habakkuk addressed in, in his book. Habakkuk prophesied at the, time, at the same time as, as other prophets, Nahum, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, and Obadiah. So there were other, many other prophets who were prophesying at that same time. I mentioned to you before that there was a, a, a cluster of prophets around the time that Nineveh, that Assyria was in power. And there's another cluster, you might say, of prophets at the time that Babylon was in power or coming to power. Some of the travel tips, the lessons that we can learn from the book. Habakkuk reminds us to ask God the right questions. In times of trouble, it's so much easier to ask, how can I get out of this, rather than what can I get out of this? Our tendency to avoid suffering at all costs can blind us to the all-important truth that our loving, sovereign Lord works all things, even the very worst of things, together for our good. Commit your problems to God. When life is beating you up and you don't understand what's happening and what to do, get in God's word and remind yourself of what you know to be true. That God is good, righteous, full of grace, loving, and he wants the best for you. And finally, train your heart to wait on the Lord. In times of trial, respond the same way that Habakkuk did. I will stand at my watch. I will look to see what he will say to me. Be vigilant in watching for God's hand in your circumstances. He will see you through the worst of times because he has already taken care of the most important thing where you will spend eternity. That is already settled. So whatever else you may have to endure is quite secondary to that most important of all questions. God can handle your tough questions. Approach him with honesty and faith, but not with the expectation that he owes you a response. Faith is not supposed to silence all your doubts so that you never have to struggle with them again. Faith is meant to make you sure that God, sure of God's existence and that he is confident, confident of his care. So we can know that God is there and that he cares for us no matter what. So this, this is the dialogue. I mentioned that there's a dialogue that takes place between 
between Habakkuk and, and God. So after we get through the formalities, the heading, uh, first we encounter Habakkuk's lament. How long must the unjust triumph? So Habakkuk finds that his society, the society of Judah, is in a terrible state, a very contemptible state, and he, and he wonders to God, how long will this go on? And then the Lord responds by saying, justice is on the way. But then he explains that that justice, the punishment of Judah for their sins, will be in the form of an invasion by Babylon. And Habakkuk's response to that is, what? Babylon? They're worse than we are. How, how, can, you, how can you give them a victory over us when they are even more sinful than we are? You call this justice? The Lord's response is that justice will indeed prevail in due time. So even though God will punish Judah by bringing Babylon against them, he will in due time punish Babylon for their sins. And then Habakkuk's final response is, I have heard, I will rejoice. So Habakkuk is re reassured by God and he can then rejoice in God's divine knowledge. There are six terms that Habakkuk uses in de describing the deplorable state of Judah's society. But those words are violence, injustice, wrong, destruction, strife, conflict. Those are the things that characterize Judah's society in Habakkuk's time. Habakkuk pictured the law as paralyzed. The laws God, that God has established to govern the social economic life of the covenant community were being ignored, causing the law to be incapacitated, as it were. The, the law was there, but it wasn't, certainly wasn't being observed. In chapter 2, there's been some question about who are the wicked that are referred to. Some scholars think that it's referring to the Assyrians, but of course the Assyrians were no longer on the scene. They had reached their demise just before the time of Habakkuk. Others think it's the Babylonians, but the Babylonians weren't uh, in their full ascendancy yet. They were just rising to power, becoming a superpower. Or does it refer to the unjust within Judah? I think it's probably the last. Jeremiah, a contemporary of Habakkuk, also exposed and lamented the injustice that characterized Judah at this time. As you can see, there are many passages in the book of Jeremiah talking about this deplorable state of Judah's society. And next time we'll, we'll do part one of Jeremiah, so we'll be getting into, into Jeremiah. Now let's go back to that important verse in chapter 2 about the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4 is it's one of the most well-known passages in the prophets. Undoubtedly because it is quoted three times in the New Testament. In 
In Romans 1.17, Paul quotes the passage as a proof text for his thesis that righteousness is from God. That it comes by faith. Uh, in Galatians 3.11, he cites Habakkuk 2.4 to prove that one is justified before God by faith, not by the Mosaic law. So Paul, in his writings, quoted the, that important verse twice. A righteous lifestyle is based, even in the Old Testament, upon an unwavering commitment to God, coupled with trust in God's promise, to reward and protect his loyal followers. In other words, faith and faithfulness were two sides of the same coin. If you had faith, then you would act on that faith. It wasn't just a, an academic exercise. But as we see with, with Abraham, you had to have the faith first before you could act on it. Habakkuk 2.4 is also cited in Hebrews, Hebrews 10.38. The author of Hebrews urged his readers to remain faithful despite their trials, for God would eventually reward their perseverance. So we continue to live by faith even, even if we can't see the reason for doing it. We can be certain that God will reward us eventually and that we are in his faithful care. In a similar way, the Lord reminded Habakkuk that persistent godliness would sustain the innocent through the difficult times ahead. And God informed Habakkuk that there were some difficult times coming as Judah was invaded and destroyed by the Babylonians. Habakkuk 2.4 is a cornerstone verse in the Bible. Martin Luther based the Reformation on his promise. This is what, what got Martin Luther going, was this idea that the just shall live by faith. God's people had failed in trying to achieve salvation by being good and obeying God's law. Habakkuk's prophecy here pointed to the new covenant God would make through Jesus Christ, a promise of salvation based not on human works, but on faith in his work. Luther wrote a commentary on Galatians. His exposition of the Galatians' quote of the Habakkuk verse resulted in the conversion of John Wesley more than 200 years later. So we see that uh, this promise of the just living by faith uh, greatly affected one prominent individual in, in church, his, church history and then he, in turn, influenced others. Now, as we continue in chapter 2, verse 5 introduces a description of the judgment that would come upon Babylon. God assures Habakkuk that once he had used the Babylonians to accomplish his purposes, he would judge them severely for their greed and pride. He would not condone or ignore their actions. So yes, Judah would be punished by Babylon, 
but Babylon would in turn be punished for their actions. Then in chapter 2, we encounter a funeral song of five stanzas. The Babylonians would meet their demise, and in the aftermath of their judgment, all of their victims would taunt their oppressor with a scathing funeral song containing five stanzas. So all of the people that had been victims of Babylon's harshness and cruelty would rejoice when Babylon finally had their comeuppance. So these are the five stanzas of that funeral song. These are the verses of those five stanzas. And each of the first four stanzas begins with the word woe. Woe is a cry of mourning heard at funerals. The term also appears within the final stanza. So it begins each of the first four stanzas, and then it occurs later on in the, in the fifth stanza. But each one contains that word woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. So Babylon was attacking and confiscating its neighbors and taking their land, taking their property. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. Woe to him who builds a town with blood. So they acquired their, their wealth by destroying others. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. And I'll, I'll talk more about that later, about making the nations that they conquered to drink. And then finally, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. In other words, who, who says to an idol, Awake, treating it as if it were living when we know it is not. The use of a funeral dirge indicates that Babylon was on the verge of death. So Babylon was about to be destroyed, even though it had not even attacked Israel yet, but eventually it would be destroyed. The Babylonians built an empire by robbing and killing. They left behind them a trail of blood and ruined cities. In their arrogance, they even invaded the great forest of Lebanon and assaulted its trees and animals. Like an eagle that builds its nest in a high place, they thought they were secure. They thought they were invincible, but a day of reckoning would come. Babylon's empire seemed like a sturdy house, but the very stones and woodwork of this house symbolizing the wealth that they had taken from others, testified to its crimes. Babylon's victims would rise up like merciless creditors and demand retribution, treating the Babylonians the way they had treated others. The Lord Almighty, literally the, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, not Babylon, rules the earth and frustrates the imperialistic efforts of nations like Babylon he would dish out to Babylon what she had dished out to others. I mentioned before that Babylon forced the, the nations that they conquered to drink. So I'll explain a little bit more about that. Babylon is pictured as one who forces others to drink an intoxicating beverage until they are so drunk and silly that they expose themselves much to taunting Babylon's amusement. 
The practice was to humiliate prisoners by exposing their nakedness. But now it was Babylon's turn to be humiliated. The Lord's right hand, symbolizing his strength, was passing this cup of intoxicating beverage to Babylon. Babylon would be forced to drink to the point where drunken and silly, it exposed its nakedness. While the Lord's glory extends throughout the earth, Babylon's glory would turn to shame and disgrace. This same imagery of God's enemies being forced to take the cup of his wrath is used several times in the book of Revelation. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. So this this imagery of of taking the cup of God's wrath, uh, his enemies being required to drink that cup, is used again and again in the book of Revelation. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nation fell. And God remembered Babylon, so he even uses that that word to describe the end-time empire that's resisting God. He remembered Babylon, the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And then again, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. So we see that, that imagery of the cup of God's wrath being carried through from the time of Habakkuk right up through the end. The Babylonians trusted in their idol gods, which would be unable to protect them from divine judgment. In contrast to these man-made lifeless gods, the Lord rules the earth from the heavenly, his heavenly palace. In his presence, the whole earth must stand in awestruck silence. The silence may well be the prelude to his official, to his arrival in judgment. Chapter 3. I want to spend some time uh, on chapter 3 for several reasons. For one thing, chapter 3 is different from the first two chapters. It's a psalm. It's a psalm, it's a song, it's a, a poem. So there's some imagery involved in here that that needs some explanation. And also, because uh, liberal critics have claimed that chapter 3 isn't really part of the original book of Habakkuk. And why do they say that? Well, because chapter 3 is set off by musical directions, and it displays an um, archaic poetic style, some argue that it is not part of the original prophecy. So in in verse 1 of of chapter 3, it says, A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shagayanoth, 
that same term is used in verse 1 of Psalm 7. So it's clearly a, a musical term. We don't know exactly what it means today, but it is some kind of a musical direction. And then in verse 19, the last verse of the third chapter of Habakkuk, it says, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so one of the reasons that the liberal critics claim that this isn't part of the original book of Habakkuk is this fact that there are musical directions to beginning and end of the chapter. And in addition to that, there are three different points in, in uh, this chapter, this third chapter, where we see the word Selah, which is a word that we see often in the, in the Psalms, which apparently is some sort of musical direction. The absence of chapter 3 from the commentary on Habakkuk found in Cave 1 at Qumran, that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, would seem to support this conclusion. So in, in, the, Dead, in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Cave 1, the first cave where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, uh, there's a commentary on Habakkuk, and it doesn't include chapter 3. It just has commentary on the first two chapters. But that really doesn't prove that, that uh, they didn't accept chapter 3 of Habakkuk. The, the Qumran sectarians may have simply found that the material in chapters 1 and 2 was more useful for their purposes. So that, that may have just been what they were using it for, the, the prophetic part of it. So that no commentary was, was written on chapter 3. So they just may not have written a commentary on chapter 3. It is even possible that the commentary was never finished. Maybe they were going to write commentary on chapter 3, but uh, the commentary does include a sizable space for a column of text which was never written out. So there's some, there's some space available at the end of the text where perhaps they intended to write a commentary. So the fact that there isn't a commentary on chapter 3 doesn't really prove that they didn't accept chapter 3, that it wasn't part of the book. Chapter 3 is included in a scroll of Habakkuk discovered in the Wadi Murabat. So there are several different caves where Dead Sea Scrolls were, were found, and this Murabat is a, is a cave where some more Dead Sea Scrolls were found later on. And the book of Habakkuk in that cave does include all three chapters of Habakkuk. And all complete manuscripts of the Septuagint include chapter 3. So it does appear that, that all three chapters were part of the book originally. The archaic poetry style may simply indicate that the prophet utilized earlier poetic traditions. So that the poetry of this third chapter is, is written in a, in a style that uh, wasn't characteristic of Habakkuk's time. It was more characteristic of, a, of an earlier time, like the time of David. It's kind of interesting because the liberal critics point out that this poetic style is old, but they claim that the musical directions were, were not used in, in Israel's history until later. So that's why they claim that, that this third chapter couldn't have been part of the original book of Habakkuk. 
Critics claim that the musical terms used in chapter 3 came later in Israel's history. So they, they claim that this couldn't have been a, a product of Habakkuk's time. But these arguments are fallacious. Because Levitical music existed long before Habakkuk's time, David originated much of the Levitical music. The, uh, the liberal critics claim that, that David couldn't have written psalms, he couldn't have written music and poetry, because they say he was a man of war. He couldn't have done this. Well, <laughs> most people are not so one-dimensional that they can only do one thing. <laughs> so the fact that he was a man of war doesn't mean that he wasn't capable of writing psalms. It is only natural for someone within the Levitical tradition, like Habakkuk, who we think was a Levitical priest, to be interested in music and psalms. There is no compelling reason why a prophet would have been incapable of composing a psalm of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Large portions of the prophetic writings are highly poetic in nature, character. So, Habakkuk is not the only one who, whose prophecy contains poetry. This is quite, uh, quite common among the, the prophets of the Old Testament, that there are poetic sections of their prophecies. In chapter 3, there's a, a report about the, the mighty deeds, the mighty acts of God. When we have this report, it's composed of two parts. There's two parts to this report. Verses 3 through 7 speak of the Lord in the third person and picture his march from the south. So it's speaking of God in the third person. In verses 8 through 15, the prophet directly addresses the Lord as he recalls what the report said about him. So here he's speaking to God in, in the second person. References to the Lord traveling the sea with his horses bracket the unit. So before the before this report begins, it talks about the, the Lord's horses trampling the sea. And then again at the end, it talks about the Lord's horses trampling the sea. So that report is the, the second part of the three parts of the prayer. So the, this prayer of chapter 3. Uh, chapter 3 is, is mostly a prayer. The, the psalm is a prayer. It includes a petition, first of all, asking the Lord to renew his mighty historical acts and to temper his anger with mercy. So God has done all of these wonderful things in the past, and Habakkuk is beseeching God to do this again, to once again do his mighty historical acts, acts that he, like the ones he did in the past. But he's also asking God to, to temper his anger with mercy. And then secondly, we have that report the report of a, a theophany in which the Lord comes as a mighty warrior and annihilates his enemies. And finally, we have a song of confidence in which the prophet declares his faith in God's ability to protect him through the difficult times to come. So he acknowledges that there are some very difficult times coming when Babylon conquers Judah, but God will help him through those difficult times. Habakkuk responded to the prophecy of Babylon's demise with a prayer. 
He had heard of the Lord's mighty acts in Israel's past. Uh, verse 2 reads, literally, O Lord, I heard the report about you. I fear, O Lord, your work. And once we realize just how powerful and awesome God is, it does instill fear within us. He asked the Lord to renew these deeds in his own day, but also requested that he temper his angry judgment with mercy. So what exactly did this report about God's mighty acts, what did it it entail? Why did it instill the prophet with such fear? In verses 3 through 15, Habakkuk gives a detailed description of the report that he had heard. The Lord approaches from the direction of Teman and Mount Paran. Teman was an Edomite city located to the south of Israel, of Judah, southeast of Judah. Mount Paran was a mountain range located to the south of Judah, near the Gulf of Aqaba. The tent dwellers of Midian and Kushan located in the southern Transjordan, react with fear, realizing that they lie in the pathway of this mighty warrior's march. So the Lord is coming from the south, and the people that are in the way, they are struck with fear in this vivid description of the Lord coming to deliver his people. The picture of the Lord coming from the south recalls earlier poetic descriptions of his march from the same area. Back in Deuteronomy 33.2, we see a description of him coming from Sinai and from Seir, that is Edom, and Mount Paran to bless the Israelite tribes and lead them into the promised land. In Judges, this is at the, at the time of Judge Deborah. In Judges 5.4, he comes from Seir, or Edom, to fight against the Canaanite army of Sisera. So once again, it pictures him poetically as coming from the south. I think the, perhaps the, the significance of him coming from the south is simply to draw a contrast between the, the pagan false gods and the true god. Most of Israel's major enemies attacked from the north. And not only that, but when the, when the fallen angels came down to the earth, um, back in Genesis 6, legend has it that they came down to Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, which is to the north of Israel. So... Israel's major enemies, both physical and spiritual, are coming from the north. And so, in contrast to that, God is coming from the south to deliver his people. Here is a a map of Israel's up here. Here's the Dead Sea, Mediterranean Sea. And you can see Teman, uh, which is in Edom. It's to the south and a little bit to the east of Israel. 
And there, there's some dispute about this, but many people think that Paran is located in the Sinai Peninsula. Others think that it's over on the eastern side of the Gulf of Aqaba in what is today Saudi Arabia. But regardless of which it is, it's still to the south of Israel. According to the NIV and other translations, verse 4 compares God's glory to the rays of the sun at dawn. However, it is possible that the image is that of lightning. The text reads literally, and the radiance is like light, two horns from his hand to him. The Hebrew term translated light can refer to sunlight, but it does on occasion refer to a lightning. That's the way it's used in, in the book of Job. The reference to two horns may depict forked lightning. Mesopotamian gods are sometimes described as using double lightning as a weapon. An Ugaritic text appears to call the storm god Baal's lightning a horn. So verse 9 pictures the Lord shooting arrows, which are, which are often used as a metaphor for lightning in theophonic texts. So texts which give us a theophany of God in, in Psalms and in, in Zechariah. It talks about arrows. And it's, uh, the, the arrows are symbolic of lightning. The Lord is accompanied by personified plague and pestilence. So this, this poetic description describes the Lord coming to deliver his people, and he's accompanied by personified plague and pestilence. It's viewed here as part of his royal entourage. Before this fearsome trio, the earth shakes, the nations tremble, and the age-old mountains, long known for their stability, disintegrate. Once again, remember that concept of the near-term fulfillment and the far-term fulfillment? And so we can, we can say that this is a poetic description of what the Lord did anciently when he destroyed Babylon. But of course, it won't come to its final ultimate fulfillment until the end times. That's when we really will see the earth shaking and the mountains trembling. The nation trembling, the mountains falling. The Hebrew resha is normally translated pestilence here because it is paired with the term deber, plague. The word also refers to pestilence in Deuteronomy 32, 24, and probably in Psalm 78, 48 as well. But in some biblical texts, the term Resha means arrows, simply means arrows. That's the case in Psalm 76.3 and here in the, the Song of Solomon. The secondary meaning can be explained by the fact that in the ancient Near East, Resha was a warlike deity whose arrows brought pestilence. So you can see how it could be seen as either arrows or pestilence that are caused by the arrows. 
But what's going on here is that a contrast, once again, is being drawn between the pagan gods, the, the pagan non-gods, really, the, the idols, and the true god. So the, the ancient pagans were attributing the, the lightning and the pestilence and the plague to, the, to their pagan gods. And scripture is saying, no, those things, the, the lightning and the plague and the pestilence, they are products of the true God, the God of creation. He is the one who brings those things about. And what about the sea? Verse 8, through a series of questions, forces one to reflect on the object of God's anger. Who is God angry at? The Lord has climbed into his chariot to do battle, but against whom? Is he angry at the rivers and the sea? At first, the question may seem strange, but verse 15 does indeed depict the hooves of the Lord's chariot horses stomping on the surging water of the sea. So what's that all about? It becomes apparent as the vision unfolds that the sea is the object of the Lord's anger. The imagery recalls the exodus when the Lord dried up the sea. But the sea is a mere poetic symbol of the hostile nations. The, the pagan Gentile nations that oppose God are symbolized by the sea. And that also is something that we see in the book of Revelation, in the New Testament. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous, blasphemous names on its heads. So here also we see the sea as a, a symbol, used as a symbol for the the pagan Gentile nations that oppose God. And the beast, the, the end-time governmental structure of the Antichrist, rises out of the sea. It arises out of those Gentile nations. The report pictures the Lord as a warrior armed with several weapons. As he prepares to shoot his arrows... He formally commissions them to do their deadly work. So before he shoots his arrows, he, he uh, commissions them. It's sort of like uh, today we have the, the smart bombs, you know, that, that are directed to their target. The NIV translate the, translates the, the second line of verse 9 as, you called for many arrows. But the Hebrew text is better rendered you commission your arrows. In the ancient Near East, warriors would sometimes empower their weapons with magical formula. So the Lord is depicted here as empowering his weapons. So once again, the, the pagans in their superstitions would say, well, I'm going to make sure that my arrows hit their target by using the special magical formula. But, of course, God's power is the real deal. Not like the magic superstitions of the pagans. God really has the ability to direct his weapons to their target. As I noted previously, 
arrows are sometimes used in theophanies as a metaphor for lightning bolts. Uh, this probably is the case here, where storm imagery dominates, uh, verses 9 through 10. So it's probably using arrows to symbolize lightning. The language is similar to Psalm 77 and 16 through 18, a poetic account of Israel's deliverance at the Red Sea that depicts the Lord coming in a storm and subduing the sea so that he might lead his people safely through it. So that description in, in Habakkuk parallels that account in Psalms of, of the Red Sea crossing. Both passages refer to the bright flashes of the Lord's arrows as a metaphor for lightning. By the end of the book, Habakkuk knew that the God of Israel, God of Israel's past, was still alive and ready to renew his mighty deeds among the nations. Nevertheless, the situation in Judah would get worse before final vindication arrived. Ultimately, he's going to put Babylon in its place. But before that happens, there are going to be some hard times because Babylon is going to destroy Judah. While it was encouraging to reflect on the past and to realize that God would eventually renew his mighty deeds, the invasion of Judah was on the immediate horizon. Yet Habakkuk could face the future with confidence for he knew God would sustain his loyal followers. God would take care of those who faithfully followed him. Though food might disappear, Habakkuk would rejoice in the God who delivers his people from such crises. Somehow, the Lord would enable him to negotiate the dangerous obstacles ahead just as an agile deer is able to run on rugged terrain. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive oil fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. So even though the future looked very bleak at the time of Habakkuk, he could still rely on the Lord. He could still trust in his promises and trust that he would take care of his people. Father in heaven, we thank you for the assurance that the book of Habakkuk gives us that even though there may be some very difficult trying times ahead, we can look to you and we can rely upon you and we can depend upon you and trust your promises. Please help us to look to you and rely upon you for strength and realize that you are the source of our strength even when our Evil human efforts fail. 
We can trust in you and rely on you. We thank you for that. We ask that you would help us to understand these things. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen.